Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Panty Personals, a podcast where I get to have intimate tete-a-tetes with old friends and new. And today, I'm very much with an old one. <laughs> old and beautiful, of course, my much-loved pal, the original Dairy Girl, the multi-talented, celebrated international artiste and gas bitch, Brona Gallagher. Uh, Brona and I go way back. She thinks that we met in the George Bar in Dublin, And I will have to take her word for that because it was in the 90s and therefore I can't be expected to remember because the 90s were a blur. But it was definitely many moons and frocks ago. She first rocked into our lives in The Commitments 30 bleeding years ago. And since then, she starred in umpteen movies and TV shows and on umpteen stages, while at the same time confirming her reputation as a remarkable and versatile singer and songwriter, and recently making sweet music with folk like Dave Stewart of The Rhythmics and Noel Hogan of The Cranberries. Brona, hi. How Hello, are sweetheart. You I am very well. It's lovely I, to see. You. It's lovely to see you because it has been an age. I, I honestly don't remember when the last time I saw you was. I mean, it was definitely before um, Miss Rona arrived. Yes, indeed. Um, My Corona. Um, I think it was actually at either. I think it was Panty Bar. I think I was there with my fabulous aunties uh, for a night out, and you were doing your fabulous show. So oh, yeah, but I mean. Yeah, it's all a bit of a blur indeed. Yeah, it is. Um, so yes, you think that we met in the George with um, our mutual friends Veda and Pete Reddy. Yes. But for some weird reason, I have like a, you know, like a trace memory of the cobblestone bar, but that might be totally out of nowhere. I don't know why I have that. That might be totally That's wrong. That's bringing a bell. Like I would have assumed we met through Maria Doyle Yes, Kennedy. of course. Um, I think it might have been. But it could have been, been through yeah. Veda and Pete. Anyway. I'm glad I met you, bro. <laughs> right back at you. Um, Brona, first of all, let me start off by saying I love you dearly, love you but too. I also hate you because I'm looking at you here in front of me and you are one of those assholes who have used this lockdown to look incredible. You clearly have been yogaing and working out and all of that. I mean... I'm emerging from this whole thing like a big grey, actually two big grey moths. You're, yeah, uh, you've you emerged like the bloody that. phoenix. No. Look at you. You look fabulous. Do you know, I mean, I kind of obviously like everybody, it was, you know, a slow skid and then a stop. And then I thought, right, I'm going to go to Derry. I came back. I was at a wedding in South Africa and landed in Heathrow and was like, right. There's nobody here. What's the story? You know, kind of didn't really understand mm. the extent of the word pandemic and yeah. what it really, obviously, because we've never been here before. So came back to Dublin and I was like, it's only two weeks. We'll be fine. I mean, mates in Derry were like, no, it's not. So God bless my friend Shauna. She drove down, did a U-turn and we went up the road because mommy and daddy, obviously, you know, my parents are very healthy. God mm. bless them and touch wood and they're great, but they're in their 70s. And my dad will kill me for saying that. And um, I thought, well, I better be near hand because my sister couldn't because she's got children and my brother lives in England. So I went to Derry and it was like week after week, rolled into week. And I thought, right. So I just thought, right. For the first time in a long time, I was able to stop. And as much as I love my work and traveling, 
you know, I didn't realise how tired I was and how long it operated from mm. a place of being very tired. So I love yoga. And if it wasn't probably in acting and singing, I would probably be maybe teaching it or studying it deeper. I love yoga. I've done mm. it for a long time, on and off, you know, and I've done a fair amount of abuse to my body as well. <laughs> but um, so just went down the yoga hole and I have a great friend in Derry, Evelyn and Noel have a school and they went online joined their Zoom and then I have a wonderful teacher, Julia, who I met here in Dublin at one of the, the classes and she started uh, Zoom classes too. So I just did yoga like every day. Maybe Sunday took it off, but mm. I walked probably 10K a day, writing, finishing the, Noel, we, the song for Noel that we just released. Uh, walked in the hills of Donegal and Derry in that glorious weather and just cooked really nice food for me and my best mate and just her boyfriend and we had a wee bubble and I just did that. And but it was did you keep heaven. that energy up the whole yeah. way? Because I started off with that kind of energy, uh, doing the walks and mm. um, learning how to bloody cook soda bread. And I was being productive. I learned how to use editing software and making stupid uh, videos. Whatever. But I lost all that energy uh, after, you know, six months in or something. Uh, and since then, I've just been eating, you know, chocolate Kimberly and, uh, you know, patting myself. Uh, um I like, don't have a lot of tea. Like, I'm not fair about that too. There's a, wee, there's a gourmet deli zooming up the street for me. So I'm like, ooh, I'll have a meringue. <laughs> right. No, I think, do you know what it does? It, it was a funny one, Panta, because I, I knew that I'd stretched myself in different areas in my life before and I knew, I, I got to the stage, I thought, you know, I was 48 during the first lockdown and I just thought, I know what works now mm. and I know how I can get back to neutral and I can get back to the place and... You know, yoga is one side of it, but there's meditation as well. And I know people have branded, you know, this word about quite liberally in the last few years and people talk about mindfulness. And mm. I know you spoke to, you know, Brezzy about it and yep. stuff. Um, and we do have great conversations with myself and Brezzy and a lot of friends that are into it. But for me, that is a life tool and a life skill that I actually don't ignore and let it go for three or four weeks. I do it on a daily basis because I know where it brings me back to and it brings me back to the most important place, which is the present. Mm. So that to me was that time. So I just kept going back to it. So it just got me to a place where I wasn't going to be anxious about what the future was. Because, I mean, it was, there was a lot of anxiety around at the time. And, you know, we don't know what were, were happening. None yeah. of us were working. What are we going to do? So I just thought, right, there's nothing anybody can do about this. You've got to play your part as a human being. Be cool. Don't be stupid. Don't be an idiot. Mm. And then, and that's what I did. And I just kept it going. And I know that that discipline that I've brought into my life has, you know, it's just clicked me into a place of contentment mm. that I've actually never felt before. Well, you're a great advertisement for it, I have to say. Mm. Well, because you've had long had an interest in the yoga and mm. for you, it's not just about stretching out and getting the tight abs. No. It's about you being the best version of yourself. Best version of yourself. I, I, I think it's just you know, horror of the last 14 months. We're not designed to, to comprehend this pandemic and the most healthy people that we know have got, you know, been affected by it. And, you know, we know all the horror stories that we've had and the heartbreak that it's caused. You know, you only have one body. You know what I mean? You only have one mind. And your time is as precious as my time. You're only part of this this picture for a little while, you know, and I just thought, what's the best we can do? What's the best that I can bring myself to in order to enjoy this ride for mm. however long it's going to last? So to me, there's no more time to waste. There's, mm. more t there's no more time for me to waste feeling inadequate 
or not feeling confident enough about life or not feeling valuable enough or giving myself enough value. And like if you fill every part of your body, if you fill it up, you know, if you are a being of light or whatever way you want to look at it and people think, hey, she's off her head. <laughs> but if we are star particles or whatever we are, you know, fill yourself up. The amount of time we sit around feeling inadequate and feeling that we're not good enough and especially in, in not just in the entertainment business, you know, because you're constantly judged, you're constantly putting your heart and soul into something, mm. be it an album or a stage player or a film, it might get slashed in one review, you know. So you got to be strong. Yeah. Really, really strong to take that because that's the game you're in. Mm. And that's just not, as I say, entertainment business. That's all walks of life. So, you know. But it uh, is very much heightened in the entertainment business. Yeah. Because as you say, it, it's criticised. Mm. I mean, you know, most people in most other jobs, um, there isn't sort of a big article in the paper <laughs> the next no. day uh, criticising how well they did their accounting. Yeah. Do you know, it, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very personalised right. that way. That's a, it's very personalised and, you know, I love music more than anything. It's the art form that makes me feel most alive. It always has since I was very young. And in our world, you've seen so many incredible artists that are so delicate and so vulnerable. And all of the, you know, toxicity that's available to people, all of the negative people, all of the criticism can be detrimental to the most talented of people. And you kind of think, how could they have took that personally? Or how could, how would, how would that person so talented be so vulnerable? Mm. And unfortunately, some of the greatest that we know were that vulnerable yeah. or just messed up, you know, got really messed up some night and OD'd or drunk or whatever. And like, there's all those cliches in our business, you know, if you're going to do music and you're going to do acting, you've got to be strong. You've got to be yeah. really tough. If you want to go the whole hog, because you've seen people, bands be destroyed by it, individuals be destroyed by it, movie stars being destroyed by it. And I just think, do you know what? What is the best version of me that I can be in, in a sense of just self-acceptance? You have your good days, you have your bad days, of course, but you just have to go, this is that, you either accept it, you either celebrate it, or you be depressed. And you don't do anything. I mean, I've gone times in my life where I've done nothing and I've just been in Wheelands <laughs> for six months, you know. But I've 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 always kept back to it. And now as I got older, I just thought this is actually the only way for me. Now and that's what it means in Sanskrit. Mm. Yoga means the path. So, you know, it's just it's part of your life, but you feel great. You're not anxious. I got up this morning and I felt a wee bit sort of anxious, not about seeing you or being here, but just being out again, you mm. know. And I just thought, hold on a minute here, on the mat. And I did the hour that I did yesterday with my teacher because she sends you the playback. And I just knew that set you up. If you don't do it, it affects the day. Because everything's about your breathing. This morning before yeah. you came here. Yeah, yeah. That's to it. be in good form, you know, just to be relaxed and not to feel sort of, as I say, anxious or um, self conscious. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's sort of interesting too because. You know, in this business in particular, you have to be photographed beside these, you know, Amazons, you know, other actresses who are, you know, whatever, like your know, models. Um, and, and no matter how you cut it in the entertainment business, you're judged from the outside by other people. Aye. And there's a pressure, particularly on women, Aye. but on men too, but to look a particular way Aye. and to be in a Aye. certain condition and Aye. all of that. I mean, it, have you, do you feel that pressure on you? Oh God, I... You know, as a singer I and an feel, actress. And you know, what I feel is, Panty, I feel it's somebody else's opinion, number one. I used to, as a very young person, used to get, you know, upset about it. But, 
you know, and I worked on Brassic last year and I had such a laugh with the other actors and Michelle Keegan is my buddy in the show. Michelle That's Keegan. That's the show on Sky. Yeah, it's in yeah. Second season, third season? Bro, just finish the third, about mm. to shoot the fourth. But Michelle is one of the kindest, sweetest. She's a lady. She's an absolutely beautiful girl. And we had such a laugh and she stood beside me a few days and I was like, go on, stand over there, will you, for God's sake, go on, get out of my face. You know, we laugh, slag her all the time because she's so beautiful and so perfect. But she works out every day. She doesn't need crap. She monitors everything that she takes in. She looks after herself and that's why she looks as well. And my parents, for some reason, always watched Parkinson or Wogan, you know, mm. and all the shows. And you used to see people coming on and you used to see them going, he looks great, hey, hey, she looks great. Look, I'm going, oh, he, he, he aged well, hey, she looks well, hey. You know, uh. and I just think, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, because your face tells the story of who you are. Yeah. You know, your eyes don't lie and your internal, you know, your internal landscape is going to be on the old, old bake. The old bake is the yeah. same, Derry. You know, so I just think as you get older, be the best version again of yourself. And you're the only one who can do it. You know, the Buddhists say you're the one you're waiting for. These are like huge statements. And people go, oh, here she goes, quoting the Buddha. But it's actually common sense. You know, it's common sense. Mm. You're the one you're waiting for, you know. So nobody's going to get you out on that bike. Nobody's going to get you two stone lighter or give you, you know, a tight butt or a flat stomach. Yeah. Only you, you know, chips and Indian takeaway food and 15 pints is not going to do it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Get your fat ass on that mat. But, you uh, know, I've always been very active and um, since, you know, around the age of 30, right. I got into exercising right. and I've always done it ever since. And I've never really had to consider you know, weight or any of that because right. I just had You've an active lifestyle. Fat, I, 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 I'm also not, you know, my, my dad's a skinny rake. Yeah, you're and, just naturally, yeah. Yeah. But this lockdown thing, you know, it's the first time where I, you know, I, I have a whole new body shape that I, I never had before I, in my I, life. I, and I have like I, boobs looking at I, me in the mirror I, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and at first I quite enjoyed it because A, I didn't have to show. You, know, I was uh, you weren't on show, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I. And I was quite sort of like, it was just interesting to me to have I, this other I, body I, shape and and I almost like I catch, you know, I had a corner of my eye in the bathroom mirror and it looked like somebody else. And I found that sort of interesting. But because I've never really had to do it before, I'm finding that you're trying to watch discipline. what I eat and the, aye, the discipline aye, so aye. difficult. Aye, aye, aye. Um, and so I've developed a sort of a whole other appreciation for how difficult it can be. I think it's just, you know, you know, you know where you have to get to. You know, you're sort of, you're fighting weight, as they say, you know, you know where you want to get to. So I just think... I think for women and uh, and men, obviously, I don't mean to, you know, I can't speak for men, but I think for women, it's, there's so much pressure sometimes in, in our business and it is commented on so much of the time. And I mean, when I've done interviews with, you know, really established, prestigious um, journalists and newspapers, which will remain nameless. And I was feeling, you know, really like it went well and I felt that I was articulate. I was neutral about my, you know, concerns for the North. You know, I wasn't blaming or want to talk about politics, which I tried not to talk about too much because um, I'm not a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really felt we discussed this really articulate conversation about Brexit and the impact of it, British colonialism, British imperialism, uh, my life growing up in Derry. And I had this really brilliant chat with the people and the newspaper came out and I was sitting in my own in the house and I opened the paper and the headline was, I never felt I met the right man. 
And it was, <laughs> I know what the paper was now because I, I... You seen it? Yeah. I, but it was one of those moments in life and I just thought, right, is that what it's about? Mm. So that's what it's about, okay. And I was really, really hurt and I was really upset and just about, that's a so better. I have a lot of great friends working in journalism and all the crack. Yep. They said, that's a so better. And I thought, here I am as a dairy woman speaking about my country, speaking about politics, you know, what you say, I don't discuss a lot. Trying to articulate what I believe is a feeling and an essence for my community, the people where I'm from. I would never speak for anybody else. And that's all you got. Yeah. And there was a shift within me, which I know now is now known as a paradigm shift. And I thought, mm, okay, okay, that's the game I'm in. And I thought, well, I'm going to be strong internally, strong physically, emotionally, spiritual, and you can say what you want, because I'm not going to let strangers that I don't know or some patriarchal society make a judgment on me because I'm not what society perceives I mm. should be. Because if I was somebody that wanted to be in a relationship with somebody that was equal to me, I would be in one, but I haven't found them. Mm. And I know so many women of my generation and of my work that work so hard and have worked so hard since I was like 17 do work sometimes they don't want to do to keep things going and keep things moving and keep the music going and I don't need to be boxed into any category I don't need to be you know sit oh that's that, that god lover like do you know what yeah. I mean I just thought no 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 so I just went under the work I went under the mental work and I just thought right I'm not going to let that upset me the way I think it is or that you know that you're sort of left as they say on a shelf or something like that I thought no when I meet somebody that's on my level you know then I'll let you know Yeah Well I loved that that it's about somebody who's on your level mm-hmm. um, because you're right uh, Oh I I'm not settling I'm not settling for yeah, that but I just um, found it really uh, I thought everything is thought you know I actually felt towards the end, I just thought, I felt real compassion for them. I just thought, well, that's all you've got. See you later. You know, because I'm taking things over there. You know what I mean? We spoke about it before, you know, Dolly Parton and the recent incredible um, declaration of of life from Tina Turner. And, you know, women that grew up in extremely, you know, extremely traumatic situations. Because when you have strength internally and you have peace internally, you don't need anybody else to validate you. You don't need anybody else to tell you you're great, you're free. And to me, that last year has been about that because you are on your own and you are out there on your own, no matter who you have, either side of you, you know, and if you can get the sunshine inside, then it doesn't matter. Hmm. And that's what you stay with for me, you know what I mean? Well, you know, walking out your humility and at the same time, knowing your own worth. That's it, knowing your own worth. The wealth of yourself, as Damien Dempsey always says, you know, know the wealth of yourself. And it's so true. I think for Irish people as well, you know, we've really, 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 really grown up in the last sort of five, six years in knowing our own power, knowing you know, the empowerment that we have as the people, the people have the power. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the, you know, same-sex marriage. Mm. In that moment when, you know, when you were there and we were all at home, all in tears and we were all watching it on our phones in the garden and I was along with Brian Kennedy in my garden <laughs> and we were drinking pink champagne, you know, and you were, you know, on Dublin Castle and I went, this is the moment where Irish people have risen and then repeal the eighth, mm. a few years later. So that empowerment that we've had and, you know, post-colonial, 
you know, our confidence that was stripped off us with first, you know, British occupation and then church occupation, which kind of were on the same power of abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, we found a voice now that this, it's non-retractable. This is us. We're only moving forward. There's no going back. Mm-hmm. So that's to me, that this year was part of that, a sort of little self um, realization and a little self revolution. Well, you know, I'm not a great you know, Buddha guy myself or any of that of the yoga, but I think, and I have told you before, um, was something RuPaul once said. Well, I, I always credit him. Maybe he got it from somewhere else, but uh, has been my source of strength in the face of all that kind of judgment and all that is what other people think of you is none of your business. True, yeah, yeah. You just waste too much energy on it, you know. I mean, everybody's going to have opinions about you and people yeah. are going to think you're crap and people are going to think you're fucking great, you know. But the bottom line is, as long as you know you're all right and you're doing your best yeah. and you're not harming people and you're not trying to blow out somebody else's candle, you know, to make your shine brighter, you know. Like, life is pretty extraordinary. You know, when you look back at what we haven't been allowed to do in yeah. the last year, life is, it's magical. Yeah. You know, it really is. And I mean, I wake up some mornings and I'm not, you know, Saying this lightly, but you know, we all take the mo- the moon and the sun for granted. Oh, they're going to be there. You know, are they? Are they? What if they weren't? Do you know? So if you think about the actual, you know, the balance that we have, the magnetism, you know, the miracle of planet Earth, where it's sitting <laughs> and the life and all the wonderful animals and all the wonderful insects that we can look and study at and other people and other cultures and other spiritualities, you know, like it is a miracle. It just keeps going. You just take it for granted every day. You know, you just take it for granted that the moon's going to, you know, there's the moon, you know, well, why is the moon <laughs> lit up? Why is the moon lit up? Is the moonlight, no, it's not moon. It's actually the sun's completely and utterly perfectly aligned with. So that's what, you know, Whoa! You know what I mean. So that's, that's how I feel about you, Brona. You're oh. a force of nature, and I take it for granted <laughs> that you are just going to be there. <laughs> Come here. Let's have a song. Yes. Um, what song are you going to do first? We're going to do "Greatest Love." Uh, the Keen and I wrote uh, in this room. Keen Boylan. Yes, Keen Boylan, who will be accompanying uh, me on the the, the beautiful Steinway. Um, yes, we wrote this song. Um, in this very studio and recorded it on here so I think it's pretty apt and it's about the end of a love and um, finally realising that you know letting somebody go is um, sometimes the most important decision Let's hear it Keep up. 
bowl of lover says I got kicked under the cover Couldn't keep from going under No one warned me what the night would bring My greatest problem is I believe every word everybody says Daylight, reflection, comparison Fastest road to misery When will the blaming cease? Realize now it's up to me. Greatest, greatest love of mine. No need to call me back again. We're all out of time. I'm sorry for the spotlight. That I shone on you Gonna get down from my troubled tree And stop loving you I got kicked under the cover Couldn't keep from going under No one warned me what the night could bring My greatest problem is I believe every word everybody says Daylight Reflection, comparison, fastest road to misery. When will the blame and cease? Realize now it's up to me. Greatest, greatest love of mine. Greatest, greatest love of mine. Oh, Brona, that was beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, you, un- unlike me, you've actually been working yeah. during the um, yeah. the whole pandemic thing. I had a few socially distant things, and, and of course, you did the podcast now. Right. Um, but you've been you were proper working for quite a bit of it. You were filming um, Brassic, which is on Sky, yeah. um, um, in Manchester. Um, how was that experience? Getting back into a working environment. At what point in the lockdown was that? In pandemic was that? I think I went back to Manchester in maybe the end of September. So October, November, December. Right, the end of September. And so after six months, essentially of yeah, yeah, and three months in Derry, then three months in Dublin, and did it. But everybody did the lockdown house do. You know, did the garden and the house up and painted everything. Mm. And that was great. And I had loads of time to do that to the house. But then I went back to Manchester. So it was three months in a small apartment in Manchester. That was really tough. And it was a bad winter. And because it was the whole new era of COVID film sets and the COVID unit, none of us were allowed to go anywhere. We were tested, you know, twice, three times a week. A lot of us were anxious. There was two different outbreaks. So we had to stop. So that was tough for the first few months um, because it was in this wee apartment. It wasn't in my own house. We can be doing all the wee bits yeah. and pieces. But once we got our heads around it, going back then, January, February, March was fine. 
So we knew what we were up against. And so how how was it done? You're all sort of tested before you start and then you're sort of in a bubble of your own. Yeah, you're all sort of staying in, you know, either um, the same apartment block that's very strict and as regards nobody's allowed to come in that's not there. So we were all tested before we had a shit the next day and that was great. And then, you know, you're just your own common sense and discretion. People think that maybe did bend the rules once or twice tested positive or there was a bogey test and it messed things up for a day and then, then they were clear but it definitely cost Sky and what happened in the times that there was I mean twice people did test yeah, positive yeah, yeah. so what happens to produ- production 10 day down tools so you're sitting in an apartment or you're sitting in a hotel room so I was like okay yoga Pilates let's go because you couldn't go anywhere I mean you can go to Marks and Spencers mm. and you know mask up and glove up and do all the stuff we were doing but um yeah, it, I mean, we were so, so grateful to be working, number one. So you just did, I was just really well behaved on it, but it was tough. But we were working. So what, like, mm. get over yourself, you know? I mean, it's amazing that the film industry is able to continue on in that way. Mm. Um, because the music industry certainly isn't, you know? Yeah. So um, that's been brutal, you know, absolutely brutal. And in fact, one of the crew um, died from COVID yeah. during the production. Yeah, one of our drivers, yeah. It's awful, yeah. Mm. Awful. A young man was only 52 and he got in contact with it and, um, yep, he died. Terrible. Mm. Yep. The longer it goes on, the the bigger I, I feel it has as a sort of a psychological impact on everyone. Mm. Um, because it is it is more than simply having to stay home and bake soda bread. You know, it is much psychologically much bigger than that. And I didn't appreciate that at the beginning, really. A great friend of mine in London said, people have lost their confidence. And I just thought that was so bang on. You know, our confidence to, um, should I be out? You know, should, should I be talking to him first and foremost? You know, because the anxiety levels were through the roof and people trying to comprehend what the hell is going on. So we lost our confidence, not just to have conversations outside of our, you know, next of kin or bubbles. But, you know, how do you, what do you talk about now? Mm. You know, we've no crack. You know, we didn't do this last night. We weren't out to three or four in yeah, the morning. Yeah, we weren't yeah. having a gig. And now, you know, so what are we actually talking about? And, and that's going to be a slow process for people to rebuild that, you know. And just when you thought you were getting it tight, somebody else is getting it even worse. So their you yeah. know, business has failed. They've lost their property. They've lost, you know, all the awful mm. stuff we heard. So, yeah, huge impact emotionally on people right to the core, you know, right to the core of who we are. Who are mm. we? If you can't be you and on yeah. your nights out and, you know, then who am I? So any demons or any demons that maybe you'd never even think were there, you know. Yes, yeah, like an existential yeah. crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who the Very hell so. am I when I'm yeah. just sitting at home all you know, day, every exactly, day? Exactly. And you've no control over it. And you hear of completely irresponsible people that are meant to be in charge doing brutally stupid things and jeopardizing the community trust of people thinking well if they're doing it I'm going to do mm. it and then there's a boom there's a spike or whatever you know so I think um, yeah brutal. Mm. brutal but like apart from regular working you've also been creative so you've been yeah. writing and collaborating and yeah. uh, you know writing songs with other people and all that stuff um which I, again, this is also part of the reason why I'm deciding to hate you today, um, because I've had none of that creative energy. And partly, the, a lot of that, I think, to do is what you just sort of mentioned there, um, that I that every day is just exactly the same. So I, I don't find myself being sparked, you know, right. creatively. But you do not seem to have had that sort of creative Hi. doldrum. I didn't, you know, I mean, I think 
because a lot of the time, if you're kind of, if you're writing songs or you're making work and you're in here in the studio with the lads, you know, you're in a zone and you're on a flow. But I knew that I had all this time now. So what my favourite thing to do is write music and write songs. So I just dived in, literally like into the writing belly. I had the song with Dave Stewart almost finished. So we, you know. Tell us that that's the the story of that, because the backstory of that's quite fun, actually. Um, How Uh, do you end up working with Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics? Well, Dave, (laughs) um, we'd met, you know, We'd met maybe 15, 16 years ago at his 50th birthday party. I was a guest of another friend who brought me to the birthday party. Oh, you were a guest of Brian Eno. Yeah, I was indeed. <laughs> I was a guest of another Didn't friend. Mean, Don't you? Name drop in there. <laughs> yeah, the big name B. Uh, is great. And uh, so we went to the 50th and it was fantastic crack. And, you know, so we kind of remembered me. Don't think he really did. But cut to the West End. It'll be four years now. I was overdoing the Gare from the North Country, the Conor McPherson's brilliant play with Bob Dylan's music. So we were on the West End and the beautiful Dick Clement, who was one of the co-writers of the script of the commitments of Roddy Doyle's brilliant book, obviously. So Dick and Ian Lafreni wrote the script with Roddy and Dick came to the show in the West End and he goes, I know that woman, but I had the blonde wig. I was doing the sort of Barbara Stanwyck vibe. I made this kind of movie star. I made jump, but we great crack, loved the show. And Dick came and had a drink afterwards and made a great night. And he goes, I'm in LA. I said, I'll be over next month. I'll give you a shout. So we hooked up and we went for dinner. I have his lovely wife, Nancy. And he said, I'm doing a piece of work. I want you to have a listen. And would you be interested in doing a wee bit of singing? We're writing this piece of work uh, with Dave Stewart. I said, no problem. I think I might owe you one. So we went down to the studio, sang the wee bit of work that they were working on with Dave and Dick and Ian. And I went to Mexico, darling, as you do, for a week to Tulum. Fabulous, my favourite place. And when I came back from Mexico, Dave said, would you come back down and fix a wee thing? And Dave says, right. I said, and you play your own music? I says, I do. He says, you write your own stuff, do you? I says, I. He says, I heard it. He says, I was listening to it. She never brought me a record. I says, no, I never did. I wouldn't be in there. You know, shameless, shameless self-promotion. And I says, no, I didn't. He goes, it's very good. I said, do you think so? He says, your band's good. Who's them boys? I said, oh, that's the SAA team in Dublin. So I was telling them, but he just got it. Like, yeah. you know, totally got the vibe. So he basically says, ah, I love the lyrics. Who writes them? I said, well, I would write the lyrics, you know, and the music. You know, we'd, I'd come up with some ideas, but I'm not really anyway a musician that can play it in the guitar, but I've got amazing guys. So they played, so, you know, team effort. And he goes, I was thinking maybe you'd run a, write a song with me. So I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, yeah, like we could write something together. And I was like, really? And that he didn't know. Like, I was a massive Arrhythmics fan. Like, that's the band that were my teenage band. I mean, I was mm. on the all my soul, my reggae, my blues. Yeah. But the Arrhythmics were, you know, because they're soul, you know. Yeah. Popped. And you're the perfect age for perfect a teenage age. obsession. Oh, I had the jacket with, the, with yeah. the patch in the back and the school bag and all the badges and all, and the poster on the wall. Knew every record, like, obsessed. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. And I remember getting a wee bit of a sort of panicky sort of setting, setting in. And I thought, just breathe. And I could feel the sweat running down my back. And it was LA, like, it was really hot. And I think there might have been tequila involved the night before. And the sweat was in the back. And he says, right, let's go. And he lifted the guitar, walked into the other studio like this. And I was like, what, like now? And he goes, yeah, well, what, have you got a few hours? And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, I suppose I do. And we sat down and there he was playing. We started, I started, I thought, well, just just go for it here. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I was seeing this guy and da-da-da-da-da. And it was a bit of a game and, you know, I wasn't sure. And I really liked him. And, and you know, he was messing me about it. He goes, right, so it was a bit of a game, a bit of a truth or dare. I said, yeah, a bit of a truth. But then it went. You took me right back to the start. Oh, she done a number on you. She really broke. 
sat in the studio beforehand and we were talking about production and that's my obsession production how records are made and so we just banged on about music like uh, anybody that would listen to me you know they'd be falling off boredom but you met somebody that was neurotic about it and we just started coming up with the idea So I got the demo that we did that day. He sent it back to me. And I said, look. And I thought, right, we're going to woman up here. I said, can I play this in Dublin with my band? Because you know how good they are. And he was like, yeah, it's all yours. I said, so we'll just co-produce this together. I'll get the lads in. We'll work it out with the A-team. And we'll take it from there. And I'll send you back what we've got. No problem. So it was like a, you know, yeah. chess. So your move, your move. And I said, right. So now we've got this. He loved it. And the song is called Truth or Dare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we got Lucius, the Gares from Lucius, the incredible American singers that I've seen on Jules as well, like 10 years ago and completely fell in love, madly in love with the two of them because they're such incredible singers. And we became friends. So that was it. And it was great. And it came out you know, really well received. So we were delighted. And there's a very cute video with it too. I mean, it's a very cute song. Like right, it's thank it's you. so fun. You know what it was? Because it was lockdown last summer, I recorded myself in the kitchen on my own with my phone on a top of a pile of books and something. Uh-huh. The gears recorded themselves in LA. Yeah. And this is about a trivia for you now. So Dave, when the pandemic broke out in obviously America, he has also got a place in Bahamas. As you do when you're a big rock star. Yeah, because he's sitting down wearing Bahamas shorts. Mm. And at first I thought, Dave Stewart's in his skirt. <laughs> That's yeah. what it looks like. He's in his Bahamas shorts. Yeah. So Josh Stone filmed him singing his. Not a lot of people know that. So we basically okay. cut it all together. No, so we worked on it together, but no, he was brilliant. So yeah, it was really cute. Dad. It came out very really cute. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, well, so you're Dave Stewart. Oh, I have to say, though, by the way, when you're like, oh, my God, it's Dave Stewart. Right. You, you're feeling it. Like that. But like your own, you know, if somebody was to read the list of your work and the people you've worked with, <laughs> you're, you're intimidating. No. And obviously, you're not intimidating at all. No. But I mean, no. like you've had some really iconic moments, mm. um, you know. Pulp Fiction with mm-hmm. Uma Thurman having her overdose and John Travolta and um, the commitments, obviously. I mean, this, the Star Wars thing, which always tickles me so much because I always hate to people. You know, my friend is the very first person never to die in the Star Wars universe. Captain, look! Like, that is, to other people, that is so huge. And you treat all that so lightly. Do you know what? I, I mean, I don't sort of treat it lightly in a sense. I'll, I'll tell you what it was. It was so overwhelming at the time. I mean, I was in L.A. visiting a friend, you know, and that whole Pulp Fiction experience came up. But I knew how, I knew how brilliant Quentin was because I'd seen Reservoir Dogs in London in the cinema. And I just thought, this is like Shakespeare, man. This is like the Seven Samurai. This piece this dude. And then when I heard the name, because remember, it was such an amazing name yeah. in L.A. This is this guy turned to I was like, Reservoir Dogs. 
he's amazing. And I went to the casting agent, met her, and then I went and met New York, went to New York and met Quentin. But, you know, when something's that mammoth, you kind of, because my part was so wee, I kind of felt so like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I just didn't want to be sort of, you know, over overdoing it. But I mean, it is amazing. And he was such a great guy and it was such a beautiful experience. I mean, you know, what I found there last year, funny, Mammy was cleaning out. Well, Mammy wasn't cleaning out our studio because my mother has a studio at the top of the house and I call it the Maeve Cave because my mother's an artist and she makes the most extraordinary patchwork quilts, which will make anything. If you sit long enough, you'll be covered in something. But I love she, a good patchwork oh, quilt. Oh, yes. oh, geez, if I tell her you want one, she'd be down the road. She'd be like, we call her the, I call her the patchwork warrior. She was down the road, or Rumpelstiltskin. But she's an amazing... Seriously, I, 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 I love a good patchwork Oh, they'll be one so, coming down yeah, to you. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. they'll be high heels and everything on it. Um, but she's an amazing artist and she's so kind and just makes things for people she's putting but she was clearing out a section of the bomb site that has her studio and she found the call sheets from Pulp Fiction the original call sheets and I must have said mommy keep them yeah. they run a book and they're all hand typed because it was pre-computer oh, yeah. so it's photocopied pages with the Pulp Fiction thing and the hand typed John Travolta Uma Thurman me Eric Rosanna and I think um Sam Jackson's on for a wig fitting. <laughs> so, I mean, I thought, wow, so there's two what of them. What year was that? Because to me, that 90th. seems like not that long ago. And it was all No, it's time. 93. I mean, Commitments came out in 1991. I think it was 93. So it's kind of incredible that um, you look back and you think, wow, yeah. You know, so I mean, I just think what a joy to be involved in something like that. You know, it was a brilliant mm. piece and he's a brilliant director. Like he's top man, yeah. you know. Well, you know, and you know, for me, you have a slightly iconic, but yourself and Marie, of course, because the commitments for me is one of those things that for me has a special place because oh, I was living in Japan at the time. That's right. I remember and, you telling and, me. And there's absolutely nothing Irish in Japan, like uh, nothing. Uh, they, they don't know where it is. They don't know, you know, they think you're talking about Iceland, like uh, nothing. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly this movie came out yeah. and now it made a dent. Oh, I. And the fact that an Irish thing made a dent at all. At all. So I was yep. just like, oh, I have to find where this movie is playing. Yep. I've got, you know, I've yep. heard about it and I had to go and find it. And I started going there, you know, on my own in the afternoon yep. in the middle of Tokyo yep. and just suddenly stepping into the north side. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. And so I have very fond feelings and memories about seeing the commitments that day and feeling like the first pre-internet so yeah. there was no FaceTiming yeah. there was none of that so to see home and yeah. up on the big screen in the middle of Tokyo yeah. then I know, like, it's a, yeah. I know when you see it when you look back at the movie and we've seen it over the years you know different sort of festivals that we might have went to and like we did a big festival in the Czech Republic 20 years ago and it was the first time I'd seen it you know obviously in 10 years and it is I mean you know, it's a masterpiece as regards films come along. You know, we all have to remember the, the late, great, you know, master Alan Parker. And Alan was a master filmmaker. Mm. And, you know, that him and Linda Miles, who also we must mention, whose idea it was to bring the book to fruition and make a movie. You know, the team were, you know, the, the best of British cinema at that time mm. and Irish writers, obviously. And then the Irish talent that they got. And after the commitments, we all have the Remember, the Irish Film Board did not exist at that time. After the commitments, the producers and the sort of, you know, the community of film people and the producers that would have been in that world or in other worlds, they went to the film 
the government obviously and they said look we need to re-establish this or whoever yeah. you know they went to uh, re-establish the, the filling board because yeah. the gates opened so yeah. you know I think when we did the reunion 20 year anniversary gig in the Point Depot and we all walked out on stage so we'd done I think Glasgow Liverpool London and then Dublin and we walked up that gangplank up onto the Point stage and there was like 18,000 people in that audience. Mm. You just thought, this is people's favourite film. This is their film. It's part of your life because it, you know, people didn't go and see it once, they went and seen it three or four times. So, you know, and I say this with the utmost honesty out of my heart, Panty, it's like you won the lotto as a kid getting that job. I never take that fu- that film for granted. Mm-hmm. I never ever disrespect it. I never go, come on, you know. Yeah. Yes, you get tortured now and again, but I was part of something that was magical. Yeah. And that changed my life. I was at school in Derry, and I heard soul music. Hold on a minute here, you know. <laughs> the munchkin of soul is ready to rock as my mates call me do you know I was like oh how long soul music my mm-hmm. mom was like bro they're from Dublin the wee gears I said it doesn't matter it's only an accent it doesn't matter and I was literally like phoning Ross Hubbard because I'd done a couple of jobs with Ross and John God bless them before and I was like I, I need to be in that film and they were like no no as soon as you open your mouth and that dairy accent comes out no 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 I need to be you know and I just knew myself no I'll be in that film my mum was like here we go Jesus you know <laughs> but it was literally just like I just felt it in me my whole you know my heart I just I'm going to be in that film there's a real determination and you sort of steel core to you isn't there because well, I found it to be so determined I, and I, to be calling I up Ross Hubbard and I, but I just knew that, that that well you know I had an agent and I just thought well can they not get me seen for that you know it's because it was the music because I was obsessed mm. I had the bag I had a green canvas rucksack and it was just soul tapes. You go to Belfast looking for that mod that had that tip with that candy statin. So where's that mod, Philip? And we got, oh, give me that tip. You tip it. You do it down in Belfast and a tip in the tip because you couldn't get the records. Rare mm. soul, rare Memphis or rare Philadelphia soul. Obsessed. So it was about the music guy. Mm. I mean, I wish I had that confidence a lot of the time and I could bottle it, you know what I mean? But And, and the film still stands up. Oh, I- it was on... I think over Christmas on the telly oh, or something. That's a cracker. Um, was, right. You know, I was making me fella watch it. That's oh, a cracker, um, right? It really, it's still right. a good it's fun. A cracker, it's a really right. fun watch. Right. And 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 you're right. It and my left foot right. and Eurovision right. and and you two. Right. Those four things at that right. time. And the World Cup. Yes, and right. the World, and the World Cup. It, it it sort of put Ireland on a yep. world stage yeah, yeah. culturally in a way that. Yep. It felt like we never had been. Right. It gave us um, a confidence again, mm. you know. I think all journeys in life are joyous if you're confident, you mm. know, and you've confidence about stuff. And I just think, it, you know, we'd been through so much. And you think of the poverty in Dublin back then. You look at that movie and you just oh, say, yeah. oh my God. Yeah, it feels you know, like another century. It really does, yeah. you know. And what it did, it opened the floodgates to, you know, an industry that is flourishing. Yeah. And, you know, you think of the skill and the incredible talent that we have now not just obviously in our actors and our young actors mm. but in our crew you know now it's not rare for us to hear oh so you know, Sears is up for yeah. another Oscar or you know Lenny Abraham's up for you know yeah. we have you know a thriving wonderful industry mm. of top players because we got the confidence to go no 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 no, no hold on I'm here mm. you know and that's the beauty of it you know yeah uh, um you're going to do another song for us 
yeah. It's called So the Story Goes. Um, and again, I suppose it's about uh, the internal language inside you, your internal clock, the internal voice, inner dialogue. Um, and it's about quieting that in the mind. And that's what I feel. Obviously, meditation is a great skill for that. Changing the cogs, you know, realigning things up, you know, re, re-sculpting your internal, you know, cognitive patterns. And that's really what this song's about. And um, self-empowerment. Mm. And once again, the delightfully suave Mr. Kean Boylan is going to oh, be accompanying yes. you on the ivories, darling. Champagne truffle, that's what we call it. <laughs> So the story goes Counting out the troubles, nothing Put it in your pocket to see Can't remember anything you said Won't forget how it made me feel Climb inside a moment I'm never where I think I should be Crashing all around Kicking it apart piece by piece Can't control it Try to own it I got a selfish streak It's the making of me Lay it all out Call the gods down Ain't no higher power Gonna pacify me Head straight down Inside job, turn the time around. How's your heart beating now? Bless the reset, now you play it like you know it should be. So the story goes. Counting out the troubles, nothing put it in your pocket to see. Can't remember anything you say. Won't forget how it made me feel. I should be crashing all around, kicking it apart piece by piece. Out of harm's way, that's too easy. I got a warrior heart, it's the making of me. Straight down, inside job, turn the time around. How's your heart beating now? Bless the reset, now you play it like you know it should be. So the story goes. Counting out the money, nothing put it in your pocket to see. Can't remember anything you say, won't forget how it made Feel oh, I climb inside a moment, never where I think I should be. Crashing all around, kicking it apart piece by piece. No more crashing all around, kicking it apart piece by piece. No more crashing all around, kicking it apart.
beautiful. Thank you. And um, I don't know, uplifting in its own way. Yeah. Yes. Hopefully. Hopefully. Knowing your worth. That's all. That's it. Know your, <laughs> the wealth of yourself. I. Um, Bruna, when you were sort of mentioning earlier, like, for example, um, having the sort of the guts and all that to be Haslan Ross or Hubbard, the legendary casting, um, you know, at the age that you were at the time and being from Derry 17. and all that. Yes. And I've heard you before talking about um, you, you tried to get into loads of um, acting schools and that. And basically you'd turn up with your accent and open Aye. your mouth, you know, in London and they'd show you the door essentially kind of. Um, did you feel that coming from Derry and this place that... Um, well, it's it's a very distinct part of the world and yeah. it came at, certainly at the time with a lot of baggage. Yeah. Did you feel that from other people a lot? I think we did to a point, but I'll have to, you know, I have to give the credit here to my parents because my parents were incredibly uh, careful with us when we were growing up, um, to encourage the arts, mm. to encourage Louise, my sister, who's a producer now, film producer, Paul, my brother, who's a graphic designer. And, um, you know, we were always given such exposure to wonderful artists, if there were any coming to Derry, which was pretty limited at the time, but they had the Orchard mm. Gallery in Derry, which was an amazing gallery. Um run by Declan McMonagall, who then came to run uh, the Irish Museum of Modern Art mm -hmm. after that. And we had just a great exposure to great music, obviously, great art, great films when they could get them on the box at the time. Mm -hmm. And any shows that came to Derry, any musicians, even if it was like Dickie Rock, we were up front yeah. and central. <laughs> if it was the undertones up front and central, the drifters used to come every other year. For some reason, the drifters used to come to Derry because of the old show band legacy. Mm. Up front and central were the drifters. And I think that's where I got my glitter a sequence obsession because they used to wear these powder blue suits. You know, they were alternate brown yeah. one year, powder blue one year with sequence stripes down the side and down the trouser leg died and gone to heaven and as a kid that was so impactful I was like that's what I'm rocking so I'm always rocking about a sequence if I can but they were very very politically aware very very much they were so engaged socially what was going on and my father you know was on the bloody Sunday march and seen three people getting murdered on the day testified as evidence to the Savile Inquiry and you know, he's very respected, my father, and that uh, in the community. My daddy's a, a very loyal person and he's a very good person. And they just kept us the right side away from the politics. Mm. And But it was a massive challenge for mm. them, you know, to keep your family safe during that time. It was tough. Yeah. I mean, mother's just, you know, the light of my life. She's just this fantastic fairy artist person. They were mods, mm. so mad, mod mad. Um, and stylers real under the style so we talked about this recently funny my parents and I you know when we were growing up in the bog side you know we had gay activists coming to our house for coffee on Sundays or tea or Sunday dinners you know we had Palestinian activists coming into our house we had 
French gay rights activist that had red Prada shoes and a Prada bag that I will never forget. <laughs> and my brother said, you know, is that Dick Emery? You know, to, to me dad, we were like, shut up, get him out. And, you know, this is the kind of characters that we come, come into our house on a regular basis. Mm. You know, we had people that had, you know, political activists from all parts of the world that just would have met through our wacky, happy, daisy, gorgeous friend, our dear friend, family friend who was politically um, very aware. And so we were growing up, you know, we were never told that that was right or that was wrong. Mm. Everybody was brought into our house and we were educated about everybody. Mm. We were educated about people on the other side, the British Army, the RUC, what that's about. You know, straight people, gay people, black people, Palestinian people, Basque separatists, you know, but you were taught about civil rights. That was the backbone and equality. So when I went to London to do the additions for RADA and they immediately picked up, you know, on my accent, they couldn't understand me. And what are you saying? What, sorry, what do you, what are you, where, where are you from? And I was like, I'm from Northern Ireland, I'm from Derry. And I just knew this is not the place for me. Because mm. this is the way I speak. Mm. And I went home and I didn't get into any drama schools and I auditioned for seven. And then I got into the National Youth Theatre in London and my um, daddy and mommy were like, mm, you know, I was 17, but I was going. Mm. There was no stopping me. And then I got a part in a small film in Derry at the same time. So I ended up doing the film in Derry with Michael Winterbottom. Yeah. And then the following year did the commitments. He really started well. But I don't even know if I've ever told you this before, but my very first, um, you know, interaction, connection, anything with Derry was when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the 70s. Um, and I, I don't know what age I am. I'm eight or something. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we're, you know, we're told that these kids are going to come and stay with us aye, in Ballon Row for the summer. We and we're like, you know, and this bus arrives down and we're all just very excited in Ballon Row at the time, very small town. And aye. here was a whole busload of new kids and they all get off. And all I knew was that we had to be very nice to these kids because these kids were out of us. You know, from a was, war was zone. From a aye, difficult aye, war aye. place. And these kids get off and they all open their mouths and they're all with their broad dairy accents. And I was like, well, because oh, it was always like, yeah, they're just like you guys. And I was like, well, what they don't sound you? just <laughs> like us guys. But the, the gas part is, always, you know, my mother, you know, um, yeah. we, so we had two girls uh, come to stay in our house, uh, you know, thing. from and Derry. They, they're all from Derry. Oh, they're all, I wonder you know, who they were. They break away from the troubles. And, um, uh, but, um, they arrive and they're very nice little girls and they're being polite and they're giving my mother a present. And my mother does the mother thing very, you know, making a big uh, deal about opening up the present. Uh, she takes out. And it's a rubber bullet uh, mounted on a stand uh, uh, that says Bloody Sunday printed on the wow, side. And wow. of course, I, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> and for like years afterwards, my mother had it like, because she, she felt she had to put it up. So it was on a shelf, like hidden behind something wow. else for years afterwards. So And so... That was, to me, you guys were these like alien kids who were living in a war zone who were coming to Ballon Robe to get away from it all. I mean, so Derry had this, it was another world in comparison. It was, it was another world. When I first came to Dublin when I was 17, to meet my friend David Wilmot and Dave said to me, come down to Dublin and stay with us. And I got off the bus, Dave picked me up and I was staying in Joan Sheehy's little flat in Temple Bar. And then I went to the coffee inn. And then I went to South Ann Street. Grafton Street. Okay. And all these hippies and all these rockabillies outside, you know, Brussels. I was like, oh my God. You know, it was like Vegas. You know, it was like the hate in Ashbury. You know, it was all, um, oh yeah, I'm, oh, I'll have a bit of this. You know, so it was, um, 
it was another world. Mm. It was another world. I mean, we used to go to Belfast up these laveries and up to all the mod nights and the reggae nights and the skinhead nights. So I would have been 16 and we used to go up there and dance all night the reggae, you know, and it was great. But down in Dublin was like, it was, it was Las Vegas. <laughs> different world. They were very yeah. di- completely different places, you know. And I thought it was the free stit, S-T-A-T, <laughs> because that's down the free stit. And I used to say the free stit. And I, oh, the free state, oh, the free state, uh, the free state, uh. So I still call it the free state. Well, you know, we were in, in one channel land in Mayo. Oh, you know, when we go aye, to aye. Dublin to visit my granny and all aye. we wanted to do was sit down and watch BBC cartoons. You know. But I'm talking to you now in this kind of weird period for Northern Ireland because, you know, after the Good Friday Agreement and all yeah. of that and it was all, you know, all seemed to be going in great directions and people had, you know, such great hopes for the future and all that for a long time, essentially. Yeah. And then the Brexit business comes along and it has gotten more entangled now. And and so Northern Ireland just seems to be in a weird place at the moment. Are you still hopeful for it? I am hopeful. We have to remain hopeful. I think one of the great tragedies of the, the Good Friday Agreement's potential was the loss of Mo Mullen, mm. key figures in this entire peace process, mm-hmm. Martin McGuinness, Ian Paisley, when they just got to a point where they actually realised we like each other. Mm. So you had very, very key, important, respected figures within the communities of each community uh, that were vital mm. to conversation, were vital to the most important aspect of all, which is forgiveness. Because if we're going to move forward and in any war zone, any post-conflict situation, without understanding of other people's experience, there is no forgiveness. Mm. And that's where we're in trouble. So those men and women that were at that table that just went, you know what, enough of this. And they all died. And, you know, it's all about human beings. Everything's about human beings. And sometimes you will find one particular light that has that intelligence, that wisdom, that articulation and the respect to actually unify people, not divide. You know, we've seen it obviously tenfold, you know, last year with the elections in America. We're seeing it here in our own country. So I have belief that Ultimately, human beings are good Mm -hmm. and that the greatest power of all is the power to love and the power to unify. That's more powerful than any other energy, although sometimes it's hard to keep believing that that is actually real. Mm -hmm. But when you unify people together, that sense, that euphoric sense of maybe just two lovers coming back together, a family member coming back together, two family members coming back together that fell out. When you unify people together or unify communities, that feeling, you you cannot mess with that because mm-hmm. that's the universal law. That's not me being a mad mental yogi dude happy. That's the law. And when I stood in Belfast and you too came and played there. To be one is a great thing. To respect your force, maybe even greater. What do you think? 
when you had that RUC at the time, this is pre, you know, pre PSNA, you had the RUC standing back and letting young people come on together. Not young people, I mean, everybody was there. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, your dog was at it. Uh-huh. You know, everybody was on that that field to see you two playing. That was like, and that was to me, that was a, that was a, you know, come on here. This is the way it should be, man. This is the way it should be. So that, you're going to get all of the voices, you know, all of the voices of the lost tribes now, you know, spouting out that this is the way forward. No, it's not. We've no room for them in politics anymore. We don't want it. Nobody wants it. The people that are stopping this happening, that have prejudice in their heart, that have a born sense of entitlement and inequality in their heart, there's no room for them anymore. Mm. And all of the other people within the communities that used to support them, they don't because people just want two things, to be loved and to pay their bills. You know, you hear people when you go home and I stand and talk to my friends and my daddy's friends, my mommy's friends and that, that you know, truth that they come out with, the truth that nobody might ever hear, you know, the women that lost their sons, the women that lost their husbands, the women that lost their children and the men that lost their wives and all the people. And when you hear that, you know, that's the universal want that people have. There's no such thing in Derry anymore as cross community. You know, we're getting rid of them words. All we have is a community. So people at the top that think they're going to stop it, no, they're not. Because it's the people in there that, again, as we said, when we see what happened here with the referendums, the people have the power. And it won't be tolerated. Mm. It won't be tolerated because no one wants to go back to what we had before. And all the people that are radicalising young people, vulnerable young people that aren't being brought up properly with morals and respect. But the men and women that are not giving those people and those young people a chance to have a good shot at life, that are radicalising kids with dangerous, dangerous ideologies that are not political mandates, that are nothing to do with the people that died for Ireland or before. They wouldn't even understand it. They couldn't spell their names with the racism that they have on their hearts and the utter anger. You know, work on your anger and put it somewhere positive. Do not be handing young people guns Mm -hmm. and then we're going to end up with a horror and the heartbreak of situations like Lyra McKee. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A voice of Ireland, the future of Ireland, you know, because that morning when we woke up that April morning and you heard about Leary McKee, you know, that was, that was the one of the darkest moments in my life. And my mother rang me and I was in London and my mother was crying on the phone and she just said, it feels like bloody Sunday. Mm. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. You know, so all the people that think that they're hard men and hard women, have a word with yourself. It's over, you know? Yeah. Well, I hope and pray to Dolly Parton. I pray to Dolly all every night. Works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before I let you go, uh, Bruna, what, what are you up to now? What's uh, next? What's going well, on? Well, we are finishing the record. We are working on our um, 
latest record now we're going to have a new album out next spring we've just finished with the beautiful Noel Hogan on his record Cry Baby yes and I saw you on the Late Late Show doing Cry Baby and you were spectacular Uh, Um, that's Noel Hogan from the Cranberries Noel was in the Cranberries absolutely and he's collaborated and wrote together his own um, work now very much out front and central so yeah we had a great conversation last summer through Kira Davy, my music manager and they, she introduced us and we spent a lovely few days chatting about songs and different records that we love and we came up with this idea he sent me the music and the sort of track was there, name track, Cry Baby. So I just went off into my mountainous walks and my little headphones on. And uh, so it was great fun. I wrote that during the whole sort of first three months up in Derry. And then I came back, recorded it here with Connor, the vocal. And then we sent it off to Noel thinking, well, you know, it might come to something. And he mixed it with his fabulous engineer, um, Chenzo Townsend in London. And boom, it's been a great, yeah. you know, great, greatly received. It's been great, yeah. And it's because I I saw you on the Late Late and I think, oh, she's definitely in Dublin. Because I wasn't sure if you were in Dublin or not. So it was the goon. You were looking at it. It was the goon. And is there any more? I mean, you've just finished doing um, another series of Brazic, filming yeah. that and everything. Do you have any more projects coming up? Yes. We are going back to um, Manchester in July to start Brassic 4. So I'll be back there with my Carl hair extensions and my fabulous 50p clothes. Uh, looking the part and then uh, yeah we're going to get this record finished we're back here in the studio and we're going to finish um, my fourth record with the with the A team yes yeah. um, well I look forward to that and much more Brona thank you um, it's been lovely to catch up lovely, um, catch lovely up to you. see you, you love too. your cape I wore that for you your, your sequin cape I thought I better not be del- a delight if anybody could out-sequence me, it's you, but I thought not and, today, sister. And I'm sitting here in yet another caftan, all this one has got a sh- oversized shirt dress quality, no um, to hide my um, new baby bump. <laughs> your love, love handles. <laughs> um, a delight as always, uh, Brona. Um, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Wow. Is that all right? Yeah. 